Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as our guest speaker delivers this week's message. Well, good morning. Well, let's try that again. Good morning. See, it's my job to put you to sleep. And if you start out that way, I have nowhere to go. So I got to get you awake. Um, it's good to be with you. I miss seeing Steve and Shelly, and I know you do as well. We've known them for a lot of years. Um, but anyway, I'm glad that uh, y'all decided to let me come anyway. And uh, uh, our ministry, let me just give you a little context. I am Jewish by birth, and I come from an Orthodox family, not the secular Jewish people that most of my people tend to be these days, but very Orthodox from a long line of Orthodox and Hasidic rabbis. My father's father came to this country from Austria, a Hasidic rabbi. My uncle Saul, a Hasidic rabbi in Oak Park, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. I have another uncle who's an Orthodox rabbi in Chicago. My uncle Saul's two sons, my cousins, are Hasidic rabbis in Lakewood, New Jersey. And then I twisted off and became a Baptist preacher. Yeah, they're so thrilled, it's hard to begin to explain. But I pastored for 18 years, and then kicking and screaming, 25 years ago, God dragged me out of the pastorate and uh, made a Jewish missionary out of me. And for the first 16 and a half years, we were with a very large global Jewish ministry. And then I think eight years ago, this past July 1, uh, God kicked us out of our comfort zone and led us to start Ahava, Ahavat Masai Ministries. Ahavat is a Hebrew word for love. So it's Love Messiah Ministries, our task, take the love of Messiah to Jewish people. And I have a number of ministry brochures on the table there in the foyer. I want you to pick one up, take it with you, read it, learn all about us. On the back is our website address. You can keep track of us. And this way, you can pray and pray specifically. I mean, just praying, God bless a missionary. What does that look like? And how would you know if he did? But when you pray specific prayers and you keep track and you see God answering the prayers, you've actually been praying. What's that do for your prayer life? And that's what that's about. So I hope you'll do that. Um, I have a number of CDs and DVDs of messages that I preach. I won't go through uh, all of these, but they'll all help you to learn your way into this mindset so that you can have an effective witness to the Jewish people you'll come in contact with. And I do understand Taylorville, Illinois, is a little out of the mainstream of Judaism. I get that. Um, But, you know, as soon as I say that, somebody will come up to me and say, you know, I have a family member that married a Jewish person. I have no way, uh, I have no idea how to talk to them. I was all the way up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and I thought I couldn't get any further from the Jewish community. And a lady came up to me and told me that exact thing, and she said, if you came all this way for nobody, you came for me because this has helped me. So um, you just don't know when God's going to bring that Jewish person into your life. And now's the time to prepare for that, not once God drops them in your lap. So all of these will help you to learn your way into this mindset so that you can have an effective witness to that Jewish person and will help you to appreciate your faith is rooted in the same Jewish Messiah, Yeshu, Jesus. You do understand, had there never been a Judaism, there wouldn't be a Christianity. It's a direct outgrowth. It's what 
Judaism was supposed to be. And uh, so we need to understand those, uh, those roots of the, Jew, uh, of the Christian faith are rooted in Judaism. And then uh, it helps us. We put the proceeds right back into ministry. We live in Fort Worth, and we found a much larger Jewish community in Fort Worth than anybody wants to acknowledge. When I started this outreach, my research told me there were 60,000 Jewish people in the Metroplex. We sent this tract that I wrote because they're scattered everywhere. We don't have a defined Jewish community. I can take you down to St. Louis. I can take you to Chicago. And without a map, I can take you right to the Orthodox and Hasidic community. Not that hard for me to find. We don't have that in Dallas-Fort Worth. They're spread out everywhere. So I had to do something to get them to come to me. So I wrote this tract, What Will Messiah Look Like? Just challenging my people to search the Hebrew Scriptures and see what the prophets of Israel declare about Messiah. We sent this tract to 138,000 Jewish homes in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. They told me there were only 60,000 Jewish people. So how many are in those homes? Depends how orthodox you are. The more orthodox, the more children you have. So let's just say two kids to a household. That would mean you're a Reformed Jew. Um, So um, we're being very conservative. So that puts four to a household times 138,000 households. You're over 600,000 Jewish people, and no one knows they're there. So if you don't know they're there, you're not focusing an outreach to these people, and they're going neglected where the gospel is concerned. So that's why this track, this track could be the only witness these Jewish people are going to get. So it looms very large. We're now sending this to Jewish families in Houston. And if I live through that, then we'll get through, uh, we'll start sending them to Jewish families in Austin. But there's always a response card in there and that they can respond with this card. And that's when the work begins. Not just getting the track to them, but the response Uh, and building that rapport, and it starts out with uh, phone calls, text messages, emails, and eventually goes to a face-to-face. And so I can do the the follow-up on this wherever I am in the country, and uh, so that's the beauty of it. But if you'll remember the last time that I was here, some of you signed up to help us to get this to uh, these Jewish families. There's a sign-up sheet. What you do is you sign up for as many envelopes as you want to address. And I always say stay in your comfort zone. There's no contest here. Uh, If you put too big a number on there and walk away going, well, I don't know if I'll be able to do that many envelopes. You won't. You won't do any of them. We had a guy got all excited, wrote down he wanted 500 envelopes to address. That was four years ago. We haven't seen a single envelope. He bit off more than he can chew, got too excited. So stay in your comfort zone. You can always get more later. What you do is you buy the envelope, one that's this size. You'll put a stamp on the envelope. You'll hand address it. Michelle will tell you how to uh, acquire those names and addresses she wants you to, to do. And um, then once you've hand addressed them, you package them up, put them in some kind of mailer, send them back to us, and then we'll have people at our church there in Fort Worth that will stuff the envelope. When we have 1,000, we'll put them in the mail. And um, so your help with this is, uh, is invaluable. And this is not the kind of thing people all the time ask me what the 
responses like? It's usually pretty ugly, pretty hateful. We actually had one guy use some sense of humor finally. He called and left a voicemail and he said, Michelle, this is Messiah. And I have trademarked my name and you will be hearing from my attorneys. And yes, I am coming. And then he hung up. Michelle said, uh, I didn't know Messiah needed to trademark his name. I said, I didn't know he needed attorneys. <laughs> but anyway, we're, we're, we're still waiting. But uh, at least he used some, usually we get cussed out pretty good. Uh, you can't imagine how many F-bombs you can get in that little small po- postcard and send that to us. But uh, it's not going to be the kind of thing where we'll ever report that we had thousands get saved because of this. A lot of Jewish people that get saved or that will respond won't tell anybody. We have the same problem today they had in Jesus' day. The gospel writer tells us many of the chief rulers and Pharisees believe but in secret for fear of being put out of the temple and the synagogues. We still have that problem today. So we don't know. When we get to heaven, somebody will stroll up to you on those streets of glory and say, you know, you put a stamp on an envelope. You hand-addressed it. It came to my door. I opened it up, read things my rabbi wouldn't tell me. I searched this thing out, discovered who Messiah truly is. I'm here today because of it. You'll have as big a part of that as what we're having. And together we'll fulfill the Great Commission and get this vital message to my people, God's chosen people, a people so often left out and neglected where our evangelistic and missionary outreach is concerned. So pray and don't stop praying, okay? All right, we have just come through what are known as the High Holy Days. By the way, I'm going to use a stool from time to time because getting old is a drag. I have this sciatic nerve problem. I just got to the place I just can't stand my own preaching. So I'm going to sit every now and then. But no one's asking you to stand for the rest of the service, so get over it. But anyway, um, we just a week or so ago concluded the High Holy Days. It's a 22-day period, and they are the fall feasts of it. And we usually like call these the fall feasts of Israel. Even I have to stop myself from saying that. Because in Leviticus 23, where God establishes these seven annual feasts, God himself doesn't call them the feasts of Israel, but the feasts of the Lord. If you're saved today, that's your Lord. The same Lord that owns you owns these feasts. So why wouldn't it be important for you to understand these and how they do pertain to your walk before this Jewish Messiah, Yeshu, Jesus? So when we come to the fall, we come to the last three, um, Trumpets, Atonement, Tabernacles. Now we begin with the Feast of Trumpets, which is Rosh Hashanah. It's also commonly referred to as the Jewish New Year, which sounds a little confusing because if you'll remember in um, Exodus when God delivered my people from their bondage in Egypt, he instructed them that they were to, when they came into the land, they were to memorialize this event and they were to celebrate it every year, the Feast of Passover. And that Passover would be the beginning of months for the Jewish people. Well, Passover is in the spring of the year, and here we are now in the fall of the year, and it looks like we have a second New Year's Day. And that is confusing until you stop and think of it more in a fiscal sense, but not where dollars are concerned, but where sin is concerned. Because it is at, at, every year at Yom Kippur, at the Day of Atonement, that God is going to deal with the sins of the Jewish people individually and then collectively as a nation. And it all harkens back to the Old Testament economy. You remember when God tabernacled or dwelled with my people here on this earth in a visible form. 
the Shekinah glory. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. As that Shekinah glory would move, the children of Israel would follow. When that Shekinah glory came to a halt, the children of Israel halted. And the first thing they would do, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders would plant the Ark of the Covenant in the very spot where the Shekinah glory came to a halt. They would then erect the tabernacle around this, which consisted of two small rooms. The innermost room, 15 by 15 feet, in it the Ark of the Covenant, upon it the mercy seat, and resting on that mercy seat, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. This now became the throne of God and the throne room of God upon the earth. It was separated from the outer room by an elaborate veil, and the outer room was a little larger, 30 by 15 feet, In it was the golden lampstand, the menorah, the only light source in this room by which the priest and the high priest had in order to worship and serve and fellowship this holy and righteous God. There was an altar of incense that spoke of, 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 I'm sorry, worship. There was a table of showbread with 12 loaves of showbread baked fresh every week, one for each of the 12 tribes. And the priests and the high priests ate freely from this table of showbread. This spoke of fellowship. Maybe that's where our roots of Baptists having potlucks came from <laughs> with pretty deep roots. But anyhow, um, the miracle of the showbread was that six days later, that showbread was every bit as fresh as the day it was baked and put on that table. Once they had these two little rooms erected, then they would erect the tent which formed the courtyard and that took the shape of a rectangle there was one entrance that faced the east the there was no flooring here and the priests and the high priests walked barefoot upon the bare earth the 12 tribes in a very specific order made their encampment around the outside of this tent when you came in through this one and only entrance the first thing that you are going to be confronted with is this massive altar of sacrifice it's upon that altar the sacrifice is made. The high priest would take the blood, a censer of live coals, go beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies and apply the blood. Between the, the um, altar, the, the sacred altar, and the um, entrance into the holy place was a laver of brass, a wash basin. It's the only item in the tabernacle structure that has no specific dimensions, and this is important. You see, the priests and high priests were walking barefoot on the bare earth, the earth that God had cursed for Adam's sake. And they couldn't help but being tainted by that by just walking upon it. Now, they had a problem now. They were inhibited from being able to freely enter back into that holy place, that place of fellowship and worship and service of this true and holy God because of being tainted by the sin of this earth. They didn't have to go back to the altar of sacrifice every time they wanted to re-enter this room and have the blood shed over and over again, but they had to come to the laver, cleanse their hands and cleanse their feet. Then they could freely re-enter this place. And this speaks of eternal security, folks. You and I, by virtue of walking in this sin-sick world in which we live, cannot help but being tainted by the sin of this world. But thank God in heaven, we don't have to go to the cross and have Jesus crucified over and over and over again. Multiple times, continually throughout our day, but we do have to come to the labor and, and be cleansed of our daily sins. And if this labor had 
specific dimensions that would suggest it only held so much water, meaning the cleansing was limited. Now, how many of you would like to hear God respond to you when you, once again, we go to God confessing that same sin, whatever it is, and uh, pleading for forgiveness? And how many of you want to hear God say, just one minute, let me look this up. That's just what I thought. You've used up all your cleansing. Anybody want to hear that? No. We rest pretty heavily on 1 John 1, 9, don't we? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so if the labor had specific dimensions, that would mean that the, it only held so much water that the cleansing was limited. But because there are no dimensions... That means we can freely come to that labor, constantly come before God and know that he'll cleanse us and forgive us so that we can freely come back into his presence and enjoy that fellowship and union with God again. So all the way back in the book of Exodus, we find eternal security. Interesting. Well, it seems all of this structure was on a contractual basis. And it was that God determined every year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, whether or not he would honor the sacrifices, provide their atonement, remain with them yet another year, or reject the exercise altogether. And no one knows how God's going to respond to all of this activity. And so there are 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement and, and uh, Yom Kippur. The, I'm sorry, the... Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement. These 10 days are the most significant days on the Jewish calendar. They're known as the days of all, the days of penance. As a Jewish person, you're doing everything imaginable to try to convince God he ought to deal favorably with you where your sin is concerned. In other eras of time and other places in the world, it was not uncommon to see Jewish men allowing themselves to be flogged, beaten with canes while they confess their sin. Fasting is required at Yom Kippur. Numbers 29 and verse 7 tells us, ye shall have a holy convocation and ye shall afflict your soul. Well, in Jewish culture, to not eat is to afflict your soul. I know that's true in Baptist culture. I have one foot firmly planted in both, and I'm telling you it's true in both cultures. Uh, Have you ever had a Jewish friend? I have, uh, in churches that I preach in, I have men come to me, who served in the military, and they tell me, hey, I had a Jewish friend that uh, I met uh, when I was in the military, and we became really close. Have you ever gone home with that Jewish friend? Heaven forbid there's a Jewish grandmother in that house when you come through the door. You could roll through the door 847 pounds. She's going to say, sit, eat, look, your skin and bones, and she's going to feed you like there's no tomorrow. My grandmother was like this. Uh, I think my grandmother lived to cook. When she knew we were coming to visit, I think she cooked for days. We went to visit her one time. I no sooner sat down in her apartment. She's patting me on my knee. I made chicken just like you like it, and I hated the thought of this. Somehow my grandmother, who loved me more than life itself, got into her head. I love boiled chicken. Uh, Let's just be honest, okay? Nobody loves boiled chicken. If, the, if people did, there'd be Kentucky boiled chicken franchises all over the country, but they don't exist. Nobody likes the stuff. It's just hot, soggy chicken, folks. I had a preacher's wife in Florida after I said this. We went to dinner, and she said, oh, I can see. 
you've never sat down to a plate of boiled chicken so beautifully decorated with these, these colorful vegetables. I said, stop, you're proving my point. You're not telling me anything about how good the chicken is. You're trying to disguise it with these colorful vegetables. That's all you want to talk about. Come on, folks. It's just hot, soggy chicken. We need to admit it so we can move on. But I might as well have fallen in love with it because my grandmother was going to feed it to me till I couldn't eat anymore. I mean, I'm foolishly thinking I'm going to get through this meal. Here comes a serving spoon over my shoulder. Take each. He's filling my plate again. She did it two, three times, maybe more. I push it away. I said, Bubby, please, I can't eat anymore. She said, what? You didn't like it? So to not eat in Jewish culture is to afflict your soul. But isn't that the truth? Have you ever been through those dire circumstances of life? I mean where the night couldn't get any darker the valley couldn't get any deeper if you haven't you just haven't lived long enough none of us are immune to these things maybe you've sat by the bedside of that husband of that wife that one that you literally welded your soul to you know that's what God means in Genesis when he says for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave himself to his own wife and the two become one flesh You've walked together 40, 50, 60 years. You've celebrated on the mountaintops together. You've you've clung together to one another in those valleys. You don't remember life before they came into your life, and now you're facing the very real prospect of life without them because the doctors have told you there is no hope. Ever been there? Maybe it's, this, maybe it's a young mama. You've carried that baby in your womb those long nine months. You've resisted the urge to look at the pictures they take these days. You don't know whether this is a boy or a girl, but you're already in love. Finally, you go to the hospital to deliver that baby. You're in a room with a couple of other young mamas that just had their babies. The nurses are bringing their babies to them, but not yours. You finally flag her down and say, when are you bringing my baby? They We're doing some tests. Last thing you want to hear in that arena, isn't it? Before you can ever hold that baby in your arms that you carried in your womb those long nine months, that baby's taken out into eternity. I'm telling you, caskets come in all sizes. Death is no respecter of persons. Have you ever been there? Maybe it's this uncertain economy, and you just don't have any way of knowing that when you show up on the job tomorrow, they're not going to say, it's been nice, but we just don't need you anymore. How am I going to take care of my family, keep a roof over their head, food on the table, clothes on their backs? Have you ever experienced these circumstances of life? When you have, what's happened to your appetite? Vanishes, doesn't it? So when we are trying to convince God how deeply sorrowful we are for the sins that we have committed over the last 12 months that are an affront to his righteousness, to not eat is wholly appropriate. So as the Day of Atonement comes, The high priest now removes those garments of glory that exalt him in his high lofty office. He he puts on plain white linen garments. I'm sorry, first he goes to the mikvah, the ritual cleansing. Then he puts on the plain white linen garments, takes his place among the people. They bring him a bullock. He sacrifices a bullock on that sacred altar, takes the blood, takes a censer of live coals, goes beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies, and he fills the room with the smoke from that censer of live coals. Look, he's got a problem. His sins haven't been dealt with yet. 
This is the very throne room of God upon the earth. This is the God that declared, I am the Lord God. I sin not. I can't look upon sin. I cannot allow sin to enter into my presence. And he's literally bringing his sin into the throne room of God. So he has to obfuscate his presence. So he fills the room with the smoke from that censer of live coals and then sprinkles the blood seven times on the mercy seat, seven times on the floor of the Holy of Holies. He returns to the courtyard. They bring him two goats. One is going to be sacrificed. The other will remain alive. They cast lots over these goats to see which should live and which should die. And I have to hurry to tell you, when you read, this is not like going to 7-Eleven and buying a lottery ticket. When you read in the scriptures that the Jewish people cast lots, they literally held these goats up before God and allowed God to choose which should live and which should die. The goat that God chose should die. They sacrifice that goat on that sacred altar. Again, the high priest takes the blood. He takes a censer of live coals. He returns to... Uh, beyond that veil into that holy of holies. He fills the room once again with the smoke from that censer of live coals and sprinkles the blood seven times on the mercy seat, seven times on the floor of the holy of holies. He returns to the courtyard. They bring him the goat that remained alive. He lays his hands upon the head of this goat, conferring the sins of the people onto this goat. It's now known as the scapegoat. There's a priest assigned to take that scapegoat out into the wilderness as if to take the sins of the people back to the devil himself. Before they leave the camp, they tie a scarlet ribbon on that camp, and as that priest leads that goat out, in, out of the camp to the wilderness, all of Israel now is collectively holding her breath. They have no idea how God is going to choose to respond to this. Will God honor the sacrifices? Will he provide their atonement and remain with them one more year? Or will he reject the exercise altogether and depart from them? And we know it was a legitimate fear the children of Israel possessed. Because we know the day came where the Shekinah glory removed himself from off of the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies, ascended to the mountaintop, and then to heaven. We know the day came Ichabod was inscribed over the door of the house of God, which means the glory of the Lord hath departed. We know when Jesus was on this earth, that the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem was empty and devoid of the presence and power of this holy God. According, so, so they have no idea how God's going to respond, but according to Jewish tradition, at some point out in that wilderness, had God determined to honor the sacrifices, provide their atonement, and remain with them another year, that scarlet ribbon then is said to have turned white. When that happens, the priest would leave that goat out in the wilderness, return to the camp, make this grand announcement. The high priest would return those garments of glory that exalt him in his high lofty office. They burn the fat of the sacrifice outside the camp as a praise offering to God, and they would celebrate God's decision. Now, all of this had to be repeated year after year after year. They were meticulous in their observance of this. They left no stone unturned. They crossed every T. They dotted every I. They did it exactly as God prescribed it must be done. And still it was never sufficient that we could observe this ritual last year and never have to do it this year. It was never uh, that we could observe it this year and never again as long as we lived ever have to observe this exercise. This shows us that final atonement had not yet been achieved. Just as it was with the tabernacle, so too with the sacrificial system 
the entirety of the law. So it is with these events on the Day of Atonement. They contain only, according to Hebrews 10 and verse 1, the shadow of future good things which were to come and were, according to Hebrews 9 and verse 24, like in pattern unto the true which was in heaven. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9 and beginning in verse 1. And while you turn there, let me tell you, if this is the end all and the be all, if what I've just described to you points to nothing greater than itself, this is an exercise in futility. So Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1, Then verily the covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Watch verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But watch verse 8. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Do you remember when God delivered my people from Egypt and the brought them to Mount Sinai. He summoned Moses up into the mountain. God himself was going to descend into this mountain and meet with Moses one-on-one. The children of Israel were to come and stand at the base of the mountain, just under the shadow of his presence. Moses alone would go into his direct presence. They built a barrier around the base of the mountain. Because when God descended upon this mountain, this became sacred ground. And in the crush of the crowd, had they even accidentally bumped up and touched this mountain, when God descended upon it, they could die because of this. So they built a barrier at the base of the mountain to protect the people. And they came and they stood just under the shadow of God's presence. They took three days to prepare themselves. They cleanse themselves. They change their clothes just to stand under the shadow of God's presence. Well, as near as I can tell, we've assembled ourselves in this place this morning, and we've come into his direct presence, have we not? I mean, my Bible tells me Jesus made us a promise, didn't he? We're two or more gathered together in my name. There am I also in the midst. And as near as I can tell, we've gathered together in this place this morning in the name of Jesus. That means... He's here with us, right? What preparation have you made for that? Any at all? Usually when the alarm clock goes off on Sunday morning, we're in complete denial. Uh, And a little miffed. I mean, 
Finally, we come to our senses and, oh, yeah, 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 it's Sunday. Got to get up. Got to go to church. How do we ever get to that place? And uh, whatever happened to, I rejoice when they said, let us come up unto the house of the Lord. But finally, now we're running late. So we're like the Keystone Cops, bouncing off the furniture, off the walls, off of one another. We go into Junior's room and about have to douse him with a bucket of cold water to get him out of bed because we bought into his story the night before. Come on, Dad. This, this is a playoff game. It's on the West Coast. It, I know it won't be over till 2 in the morning, but you can't make me go to bed now. i got to see the end of this game. I won't give you any trouble tomorrow morning, and now you're dousing him with cold water to get him out of bed. You finally get your family dressed, piled in the car, back out of the driveway, slam on the brake, don't have your Bible. Haven't seen it since the last time you went to church. When you got home, wherever it landed, there it is. But you're going to church, got to have your Bible. You run into the house, you ransack the house, you find a Bible, not the one you're looking for, it'll do. Throw it on the dashboard and all the way to church, it's hand-to-hand combat. I mean, you're banging on the horn, you're yelling at traffic, you're shaking your fist. See, I come from a bigger town. (laughs) But I did have somebody try to run me over this morning on the way here. But anyhow, uh, and you know, the problem is Junior's in the back seat learning lessons you don't want him to learn. Then a transformation comes over that vehicle when the tires reach a church parking lot. And all that behavior goes away. It's replaced with this sanctimonious smile. You pull into your favorite parking place, and heaven help the visitor that got to it first. You get out of your car. You tuck that big old Bible under your arm. You saunter into the church. It's, God bless you, brother. It's good to see you. How are you, sister? I'm glad you're here. You wander in the auditorium. You flop down in your favorite seat. And again, heaven help the visitor that got to it first. You manage to stay awake through some of the service. When the last amen is sounded, you tuck that Bible under your arm, you saunter out, God bless your preacher, that was wonderful. You pile your family in the car, and when the tires leave the church parking lot, you revert to what you were before you got here. And it's banging on the horn and screaming at traffic and shaking your fist. And again, Junior's in the back seat, learning lessons you desperately don't want him to learn. Dad, what would it mean for the worship experience of your household if you were to take some spiritual leadership in your home and prepare your heart and that of your family members for what you intend to experience when you come into this place and come into the presence of our holy and righteous God I'm not saying we have to back up to Thursday I don't know what would be wrong with that but what if we just gathered together on Saturday evening and got our hearts in tune with the Lord. You know, I'll let you in on a ministry secret. Don't tell anybody I told you this, okay? It's okay. It's perfectly all right to come to church every now and then right with God. Won't hurt a thing. I promise. You should try it sometime. Uh, You'll wonder when the singing got so good. You'll wonder when that preacher learned to preach so well. And nothing's changed except this, except this. They, they were coming to stand under the shadow of God's presence, and they took three days to prepare themselves. We're coming into his direct presence. I think that merits some preparation, don't you? Moses alone went into his direct presence. He had one thing on his heart. He kept badgering God with it, and God finally said, I can't let you look on my face No man has looked on my face and lived, but this one thing I'll do. Hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. 
I'll cover you with my hand. Ever wonder where the old hymn came from? I mean, these courses you did this morning had some meat to them, and, and I appreciate those. You know, there's uh, not the 270 jobs, you know, two words sung 70 times faster and faster till your eyes roll back in your head. Um, and they'll sing those two words like, for 15 minutes, and I'm sitting on the front row going, Lord, they really ended this song a long time ago. Could you point that out to them so we can move the service forward, <laughs> you know? Uh, not those, but we had some choruses here that had some meaning to them and, and brought you into the presence of God. I don't have a problem with that, but we ought not get rid of all the old hymns, and you started with an old hymn today. There's a lot of wonderful Bible there. Hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. Then the Bible says, as God passed by, he removed his hand, allowed Moses to look on his hinder parts. I don't know why. I just like the way that reads. So the thing is, the experience was so awesome. Moses' face began to glow. Forty days and forty nights later, he comes down from the mountain. His face was still glowing. And the people had to wonder what happened to their leader on that mountain. What I'm trying to tell you, the way to God had not yet been made manifest. It was still shrouded in rituals. It was still shrouded in sacrifices. It was still shrouded in those things which could never reconcile a sinner to a holy and righteous God, which could never justify us in his sight, which could never please and satisfy his righteousness. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and beginning in verse 1. And again, if this exercise is the end all and the be all, and it points to nothing greater than itself, then Judaism as it's observed offers no personal one-on-one confrontational relationship with this holy and righteous God. Hebrews 10 and verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers there unto perfect. I love the next phrase. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Hey, if those sacrifices we did last year did the job, why do we have to keep doing them year after year? Because at the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins but in those sacrifices there's a remembrance again made of sins every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins wherefore when he cometh into the world he saith sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body hast thou prepared me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure then said I lo I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God, above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. So again, it has to point to something greater than itself. Otherwise, Judaism, as it's observed today, is wholly insufficient. But then came Jesus. Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the glory. Watch him as he removes those garments of glory that exalt him in his high lofty office. He removes that kingly crown from his head, casts that kingly robe from his shoulders, steps down from his kingly throne, veils himself in human flesh, bound himself in the womb of a woman who herself was a sinner. As it Yet to dawn on you, had Mary not come under the same saving grace you and I have come under, had she not yielded to the salvation that this one 
she physically bore into the world, came to bring. She could not be in heaven today. This is the same God who declared, I cannot look upon sin. I can't let sin enter into my presence. And still he allowed himself to be bound in the womb of a woman who herself was a sinner. That's condescension. That's humility. She brought him forth, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in grave clothes, put him in a filthy, vile feeding trough. We've so glamorized that manger, haven't we? It was just a feeding trough, folks. I can see they had to dump the old hay out that the animals slobbered over, put fresh hay in there, laid the creator of all that is, the savior of all mankind, now in this feeding trough, have to hold the animals at bay to keep them away because he's laying in their food dish. He grew. He walked this earth for some 34 years. He was tempted, tried, never one time sinning. Goes to the cross to suffer, bleed, and die. Now he's on that cross. And that moment came where he not only bore our sins in his body, not only is he the goat that shed his innocent blood, he's also the scapegoat, bearing our sins in his body to carry them away. But Paul tells the church at Corinth that he took it a giant leap forward from that. He says, he who knew no sin became sin for you and for me that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. Jesus became the thing that was destroying us that he might have victory over it once and for all. And so his victory over sin then is our victory over sin. But in that moment when Jesus became the one thing God couldn't look upon. In the middle of the day, it became midnight. The skies blackened. The earth began to tremble. The thunder began to rumble. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The songwriter penned the words. The angels stepped to heaven's shore to witness what the Father would not see as he turned his back on his only begotten. Jesus, in a few moments, commends his spirit to the Father, hung his head, gave up the ghost, and the earth quaked, and the veil in the temple is rent from top to bottom, and so God himself reached down and tore it asunder. And now the way to God is made manifest. Now we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help and mercy in our time of need. Look at Hebrews 9 and verse 11. Hebrews 9 and verse 11. But Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more? shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, hung his head, gave up the ghost. He went into the heart of the earth. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. He led captivity captive. He took the Old Testament saints now and presented them before the Father because the payment now was made. Their sins had been not just covered and atoned for, but removed. And they were totally cleansed. And so he, he stood before the Father. He, he 
went beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies, played the role of the high priest on our behalf, presented the blood of his sacrifice upon that mercy seat. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, when he went to the cross of Calvary, brought the Old Testament sacrificial system to its utter and absolute fulfillment. The only way we can begin to understand the sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, system is to see Jesus fulfilling them when he went to the cross. The only way that we can even begin to comprehend how much God loves us and wants us back in his life is to see him allowing Jesus to go to the cross and bleed and die and pay that payment we could never afford to pay. Folks, our faith, therefore, has an anchor. It's not a hope so, could be so, should be so, maybe so. My Bible tells me in 1 John chapter 5, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God that ye may know that ye have everlasting life. So now I want you to, again, see Jesus. I want you to see Jesus as he divests himself of all of his glory, veils himself in human flesh, walks this earth for some 34 years. And now it's time for him to go to the cross. Don't you ever let anybody try and tell you Jesus was afraid of going to the cross. That opening scene in Mel Gibson's movie, folks, never happened. You know where in chains they brutally dragged Jesus out of Gethsemane and dragged him to Caiaphas against his will? Do you remember what happened in those wee hours of that morning? Here comes Judas with the troops, plants a kiss on Jesus' face. Jesus backs up and rebukes him, betrays out the Son of Man with a kiss. But do you remember what happened next? Jesus did this. And they all fell down as dead. Now, had Jesus not risen them up, they were taking him nowhere, right? Do you think for one moment, having just experienced that, you're going to lay a finger on Jesus? I don't think so, folks. I think Jesus led the parade, and they walked at what they thought was a safe distance. Um, Jesus was not afraid of going to the cross. John chapter 17, he's begging to go to the cross. John 17 and verse 5, I have done all that thou hast given me to do. Wouldn't it be wonderful in the closing breath of our life on this earth, we could utter those words to an all-knowing God and they be true? They were for Jesus. I've done all that thou hast given me to do. It is time now that thou glorify me with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. Jesus was telling the Father, he wanted that kingly crown restored to his head. He wanted that kingly robe back across his shoulders. He wanted to be restored to his throne, and he knew the only way that could happen, he first must go to the cross, suffer, bleed, die, go into the heart of the earth, and then rise again. Far from being afraid of going to the cross, John 17, 
he's begging to go to the cross. I wish you could have been with us the first time that we went to Israel, 1996. They took us into what is presumed to be the upper room. We know it's not the upper room because all of Jerusalem was destroyed uh, in 70 AD. Plus, this is uh, crusader architecture. They didn't have that in Jesus' day. So, but it's in the right location. So I wish I could have heard our guide, David Jacobs, a Jewish man from Great Britain. He has a very interesting accent. It's a mix of Great Britain and Israeli accent. It's really interesting to listen to. But anyway, um, he, can, he can preach the New Testament like any Baptist preacher I've ever listened to. He just doesn't believe one word of it. But I wish you could have listened to him describe the upper room to us. And he pointed out on this wall a carving he called a mish. He said, this is very important. It points us in the proper direction to face when we're in this room worshiping. But we have a problem with this mish. It's on the wrong wall. He went on to tell us every synagogue in the world is built such that when the Jewish people are worshiping, they're facing Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, they're facing the Temple Mount. But we have a problem. We're facing the wrong direction. He said, if you could look out through this wall, the Temple Mount is in this direction. We should be facing this way, but we're not. We're facing this way. Then he said something he must have said a hundred times before. This time he heard it, and it scared him. He said, but if you could look through this wall, you'd see the empty tomb. He stopped talking, folded his arms, backpedaled as fast as he could. If you know anything about body language, at this point he's preaching a mouthful. He got too close, close to a line he never wanted ever to encroach upon, and he had to back away as quick as he could. I'm in the back of the crowd jumping up and down, waving my hand. Five minutes, just give me five minutes. This is everything I'm trying to tell you this morning. It is not the dead works of the law. It is not the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. But it is this one man who, after offering him one time for many, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ever to make intercession for you and for me. And this is why Jesus could tell the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that if you would have asked of me, I would have given you rivers of living water. You would have thirsted no more. This is why Jesus was able to tell the woman caught in the very act of adultery in John 8 verse 10 and 11, neither do I condemn thee. Go thou and sin no more. To the multitudes in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of life, and he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 10 and verse 9, I am the door. John 10 and verse 14, I am the good shepherd. John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In Revelation 22 and verse 17, let, that whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Can we talk about that scarlet ribbon for just a moment, and I'm done. When we came into Jewish ministry 25 years ago, I was pastoring in Chicago, and we left Chicago to join this ministry and moved down to the Charlotte area where they were headquartered, oldest Jewish ministry in the country, left New York City, home to 3 million Jewish people, the single largest Jewish population in one city on the earth and they went to Charlotte where if they were all home there might be 5,000 but they repented of that and they're back in New York City Um, but that's where they were so we moved there Michelle went to work in their offices as a church caller and she was scheduling meetings all week long for me and 
probably eight or ten other missionaries. So she makes friends with pastors all over the country that she never gets to meet. One of these pastors called her one morning and said, Michelle, I have a question. I wonder if you can help me with the answer. She said, I'll try. She said, he said, after the cross, there were about 35 more years before the temple was destroyed. If Jesus was about 34 years old, then this would be somewhere around 34, 35 A.D., 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. So there are about 35 more years. And she said, right. What happened to that? And, and they continued to sacrifice every year for those 35 years. She said, yes. What happened to that scarlet ribbon over those 35 years? She said, I don't know. I'll see if I can find out. So she went into Ben's office. Ben came into Jewish ministry when the Dead Sea was just sick. And she posed this question, and he leaned back in his chair, got this pleased look on his face, folded his arms over his big old belly, and just said, oh, my. In the Talmud, the Talmud, the ancient rabbi's commentary on the scriptures, these ancient rabbis have an entry that tells us after the cross. Are you ready for this one? After the cross, that scarlet ribbon never turned white again. Now, folks, that ought to be enough to even make a Baptist shout. These ancient rabbis are acknowledging something pretty spectacular took place on that cross when Jesus bled and died because never again did God honor those sacrifices and provide atonement. The ultimate sacrifice was fulfilled and complete when Jesus went to the cross and bled and died in our place. And, folks, this is why one day your religion's going to fail you. It's not enough that you're a member of Calvary Baptist Church. It's not enough that you've been baptized. It's not enough that you're a deacon, a trustee. It's not enough that you're a Sunday school teacher. It's not enough that you were raised in the home of a deacon or a trustee or of a pastor. It's not enough that you teach Sunday school, tithe, give to missions, that you never miss a service. Whenever these doors are open, you're here. All of these are wonderful things. Not one of them is going to get you to heaven. Because only Jesus... And I mean only Jesus became the thing that was destroying you and conquered it once and for all. And again, his victory over death, hell, and the grave, his victory over sin is our victory over sin. So very clearly we can see just how much God loves us and how how desperately he wanted us back in his life. Something so valuable and so precious was stolen from him in the Garden of Eden when Adam fell to sin. And he wanted it back. And he wanted it back so desperately that he allowed his only begotten son to become sin and where he had to break his union with him even for that instant to pay that price that we could never, ever afford to pay. We can see how much Jesus loves us because he was willing to pay that price and endure all that he had endured and sever that union with the Father even for that moment. And that was a difficult thing. You see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane a few hours earlier sweating as it were great sweat drops of blood over this issue. But nonetheless, he was willing to do it. The only question is, where are we in this? 
How have you or will you respond to this love of God? You're going to walk away from it? You're going to just blow it off? Say, yeah, I'll get to heaven, but on my own terms? Mm -mm. You can come down to Fort Worth, ring our front doorbell. We'll welcome you into our home, make you something to eat. We'll have a good time. Or you can come down to Fort Worth, throw a brick through my front window and crawl in that way. We'll pick you up and throw you right back out the same way you came in. Everybody here understands that, right? This is my home. You've been invited, but on my terms, not yours. So why don't we understand that where heaven is concerned? Heaven is God's home. We have all been invited, but on his terms, not ours. And his terms require we come under the blood. What are you going to do with it this morning? Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Stop playing church for a minute, okay? I mean, who are you trying to kid? You come service after service trying to convince these people you're something you're not. They'll wind up in heaven. You'll wind up in hell. Wow, you're sure full of them. Come on, knock it off. This is the most critical issue in your eternal existence. This one you want to get right. What are you going to do with what you know this morning? Where your own eternal soul is concerned. You that are saved, what are you going to do with it? Well, I trust in Jesus. Well, that's great. That took care of you. Is that it? How are your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, people you work with, rub shoulders with every day of your life? How are they going to get to heaven? Well, preacher, the only way they can is the blood of Jesus. You made that perfectly clear. That's my point. So when are you going to start telling them? It's not my job. We've always had a pastor to do that. It's his job. Uh Uh-uh. Sheep make sheep. Shepherds don't make sheep. It's not the pastor's responsibility to win every soul to Jesus in this community, and it won't happen. And I know a lot of, I know most, all your pastors going back to Gary Gray. And I'll tell you, every one of them would have loved to. But it wasn't God's plan. You're rubbing shoulders with people your pastors will never meet. Why aren't you telling them about Jesus? You can throw the excuses away. There's only one reason for it. We have long come to the place where we care more for their favor than we do their soul. We want these people to like us. And we're just not willing to risk making them mad by telling them about Jesus and losing their friendship. Can I tell you, that's an awful high price for them to have to pay to be our friend. They should spend eternity in hell so we can play with them for a little while on earth. Come on, folks. We have what they desperately need. How dare we keep hiding it? And then what are you going to do with what you know this morning where my people are concerned? They are desperately dependent on you for a gospel witness. Will they get one? So what are you going to do this morning where your own eternal soul is concerned, where that of those in your circles of influence are concerned, and where my people are concerned? Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I think it would be a wasted morning if we left this room and did not give you the opportunity to respond to the Holy Spirit of God. And I have no idea what that looks like for you. I mean, I couldn't claim to know your heart. Nobody would want to know your heart. I think you do. I'm confident God does. Would you get along with God right here where you're standing? And just ask him, 
to show you what it is and how it is that he wants you to respond to what you heard this morning. And then just do it. Stop telling the Holy Spirit no. Some of here might need to get saved. You need to run to this altar. Let someone take the word of God and introduce you to the Savior. And do it now. Now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. The word of God says do it now. Who are we to say we'll do it later? There may not be a later. Life is but as a vapor, James says. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Life goes by like that. Don't squander this opportunity. Come and get saved. I think a lot of us just need to get on our face before God and ask God to break our heart for lost souls. When's the last time you told anybody about your relationship with God because of Jesus? And with that broken heart, we need to go into those highways and hedges and compel them with the gospel. And ask God to give us a special passion to provide this same gospel witness to his chosen people. Father God, I love you. I thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleansed me of my sin over 52 years ago. Not only that Jesus saved me, but he keeps me for all of eternity. If there's one here this morning within the sound of my voice, without this same assurance, I'm pleading with you, Father, let this be the moment. Let your Holy Spirit win that battle. Draw them to the cross. Let them open their heart and gloriously be saved once and for all. For those of us who are saved, break our heart for lost souls. Help us stop being content to go day after day, week after week, year after year. Never, ever telling anybody of of our relationship with you because of Jesus. Forgive us of that, Father. Give us a boldness in our witness that will come from a broken heart for lost souls. Lord, I pray that you'll also give us a special passion to provide this same gospel witness to your chosen people. Bless us as we remain faithful in these things. For it's in Jesus' name, for his sake, we do ask it.